0: But with the two witnesses, it, the angel doesn't give us a direct interpretation, so we've had to make up our own interpretation. We've, we've all thought it was Moses and Elijah, and Moses and Enoch, um, or Elijah and Enoch, and um, and we've made up our interpretation from what we, from the evidence that we've gathered. However, the key verse to their identity is Revelation 11:4, that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That they're two olive trees, and they're two lampstands. so, It's like God is saying, this is who they are. You wanna know who they are? They're two olive trees, and they're two lampstands. Now find out what olive trees represent in the Bible, find out what lampstands represent in the Bible, and then you've got a picture of who they are. Doesn't that make sense? That's how God expects us to look at scripture, especially book of Revelation. Because it's a symbolic book in many respects. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. That's what we are the witness. We are the witness that He is God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act who can reverse it. So He is God and that is our witness. And that is what the two witnesses will reveal with such great authority, with such great power, doing such great exploits, that that the people of the world will have to stop and take notice. Actually, they take notice so much that they want to kill them. They want to kill the two witnesses. At the moment, we're we're just annoying people in the world, aren't we? You know, these crazy Christians, you know. Because it seems ridiculous. What are these guys doing in church like this? And they think we're praying to some unknown god or just something of, and in our imagination that we've that we've got a. It's all faith based and faith is not science. It's, you know, it's not true. But at this time, the power of God will be so strong on the people of God that all the people of God, if they if there's something going on over there and they come and gets that in the name of Jesus, it will happen. And if people are trying to harm them. The fire that comes from their mouths will be the Word of God because we're going to find out what that fire means. He's going to make the word in our mouth like fire. I was saying to Jamie yesterday about someone trying to harm us. And, you know, if if it's literal fire and and you've got a sniper from one kilometre away and he's about to take your head off and you have to breathe fire, that fire's got to go a long way, doesn't it, to burn him up. But what it is, is you're preaching the word and God can see there's a sniper about to take you out. So what does the sniper do? Uh, God do to the sniper? Kills him. Boom. And it's because of the word being preached that he will die. Because he's trying to harm you. And God's not going to let anyone harm us while we preach for three and a half years. When we prophesy, and that's what it's called prophesying. We will be prophesying the word of God because the spirit of God will come upon us so powerfully that the very words of God will be given us all the time that's the power of God coming out from our mouths that's the level of this revival but we're gonna have an adversary our old adversary and he's gonna at the end of that three and a half years he's gonna come up from the abyss he's gonna be exposed for all to see people will see him and they'll realize "Uh aha, he is real there he is he come up and what's he gonna do he's gonna wipe out the two witnesses and it's there's many references to the saints in those days, being killed beheaded, and crying out to God, when are you going to exact vengeance on our enemy and, and justify us in this situation? He says, wait until the full number of those who have to die just as you have died have come in. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 11. This is uh, a sermon that I spent a, a huge amount of time yesterday working on, and, and this morning. Um, it's a, a very unique uh, thing that uh, occurred in me in the last week. Um, Jamie sent me something to check out, and I checked it out. And, um, as you do when you're thinking a certain line, and you've you got your, your idea of what the book of Revelation means it runs against the grain and you're sort of like, no, 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 no. Uh, and then you sort of, as you keep watching, you go, you know, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. And then as you progress, you start to, your eyes start to open um, to something that uh, you've never seen before, or at least you've heard about, but you never really looked into it. And uh, this was one of those times. So putting this together has been a huge thing because I want to bring it to you in a way that is, going to help you see it hopefully um, and that it won't uh, like it's more than likely going to fly in the face of what you immediately believe Um, and uh, but then i want you just to consider it because i just considered it Um, and then i started to tie in what i thought it meant to the potential of what it also means and when i combined the two it even made more sense you know what i'm talking about don't you Jamie? And, uh, and it also spoke of the last great revival uh, that the world is going to experience and gave us some insight into the kind of move of the Spirit that is going to take place in the last days, which is unlike any move of the Spirit previously. Um, it's going to have all the elements of the moves of the Spirit, like during the Great Awakening and the... Uh, you know, the Welsh revivals and the Scottish Hebrides revivals and all those revivals that have preceded us, um, it's going to have those qualities, but it's going to have some elements that we've um, that we've never seen in those kinds of revivals before. And it's incredibly exciting when you start... You know what I'm talking about? Jamie and I, like I met Jamie, just to run through things, get some thoughts off Jamie yesterday and, and get my mind around what um, is uh, in this in the content of what I'm about to preach. And we were both jumping out of our skin with things, weren't we? Like with the excitement of what was the potential. Because as, as we finish this sermon today, because I didn't cover everything Jamie and I talked about, um, but as I finish, you guys, will might you'll start joining the dots as well. And it, it's quite mind-blowing. So please bear with me um, on this sermon because it is a, uh, quite a um, big work that I put together and because I really wanted to make it clear to you. Um, but everyone's obviously heard about the two witnesses. So let's turn to the two where it speaks about that in Revelation 11. We're going to start from verse 3. I don't want to go into the, the information to do with the temple today because it will, that's a, another sermon. Um, also, I need to do a sermon on the 144,000, which will tie in with this. And uh, there's something that Andy has been sharing with me about the 144,000, which was also quite revelational. And it also fits in with what I'm preaching today. But I can't cover all those bases unless you want to stay with me for until about 5 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> now, Revelation 11 from verse 3, and it says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague and as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets had tormented those who live on earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was passed. The third woe is coming soon. And then after that the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. So with the ascension of the two witnesses we see the end, the seventh trumpet, which is talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52 and that at the last trumpet will be the time that the Lord will return. So... That's a pretty powerful passage. That was a lot going on there. These are two witnesses, and these witnesses are given great power. And with that power, they do um, amazing miracles and wonders on the earth, causing it not to rain while they're prophesying, striking the earth with plagues at any time they want. Uh, anyone who tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths, and so on. These are powerful Witnesses. And so I want to talk to you about that. Now, I just want to thank uh, AOC Network, uh, a guy called Jaron Lewis, um, for much of the content of this sermon, as it had a great impact on reshaping my view of the two witnesses. Or at least expanding my view, is probably a better way of understanding. Expanding my view of the two witnesses. It's extremely exciting. Now, what we're going to get is a picture of the last day's revival. What we're going to see. From this as we look at the two witnesses we're going to get a picture um, in December we'll receive a picture of what the last great move of the Spirit is going to look like and I'm going to try to give you that picture as clear as we can today there's four main views of the book of Revelation one is called historicists um, it's where they see the book of revelation getting fulfilled throughout history or the last 2,000 years Another view is preterism, that the whole book, uh, like a, a, a full preterist, believes that everything was done in the book of Revelation, was completed and finished in AD 70, which is very difficult for that to be the case because the book wasn't written until AD 95, so I, I don't sort of take the side of preterism. Um, and there's many other reasons why I don't as well. Uh, there's also a, a spiritualist view, and that's where they spiritualize everything so that it really isn't relevant to today. Um, in, in many ways uh, and there's also a futurist view and I would call myself a futurist but among the futurists there's many different opinions and views of what a futurist is um, and of what they believe I should say but the historicists believe that the two witnesses are a long line of witnesses for Christ during, during the 1260 years of papacy, papacy which is the Catholic Church prior to the reformation so for 1,260 years, from the birth of the Catholic Church, uh, these witnesses have kept appearing for 1,260 years, and that day would be called who they believe would be the two witnesses. Um, there's many reasons why I don't believe that, and I don't even need to go into it, but I'm sure most of you here probably don't agree with that view, even though Jesus calls everyone his, to be his witnesses, you know? witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That he will empower his witnesses to be witnesses. And you know what the word witness means? In Greek, it comes from the word martus, which is martyr. So, um, the word witness is martyr. So, we are called to be witnesses. And let's have a look at that. I'll just take you there. Let's go to Acts. Acts 1 and it's verse 8. And it says this. It says, But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But let's change it and put the Greek word in there. But you will be receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. has a completely different spin when you put the actual Greek word in there, doesn't it? It make, make, makes a lot of... Uh, or it changes the meaning considerably in our mind because a witness, you just think, oh, we stand up and witness or we go out witnessing in the streets. We talk to people. Well, that's what the original meaning of it was. When the the early church was first formed, Jesus says, you've got to be my witnesses. And in their minds, yeah, we'll tell people about Jesus. There's no problem with that. Next thing you know, they're getting killed for their faith and they weren't recanting. So what a witness started to mean was someone who lays his life down for his faith willingly not the way the islam calls themselves martyrs is when they go out and actually blow themselves up on a bus that's not what a christian that's not what a martyr is a martyr is someone who someone else kills because he's proclaiming the gospel of jesus christ that's the true meaning of the word martyr so that's um that's interesting isn't it because are we all called to be witnesses when you said, I want to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you put your hand up and said, I will witness for Christ. I will be a witness. And then you've got to take that further. You've got to say, well, what does a witness mean? It means a martyr. Now, you have to question that as well. Am I a martyr for Christ? This is challenging stuff, isn't it? This sorts the sheep out from the goats. You know, If you go into the countries where ISIS is currently invading and they're, um, you know, they're uh, out there killing Christians in the droves, you know, an old call in those countries would be Are you prepared to lay your life down for Jesus Christ? Are you prepared to be a martyr? Are you prepared to walk out that door right now and someone cut your head off? Pretty graphic, but that's what's happening. This is happening to Christians right now as we speak. Are you prepared to go that far for Jesus Christ? Because this is not clappy happy stuff, mate. This is the real business. There's people out there who want to kill you because you believe what you believe now. Are you prepared to still be Christian? They're the kind of people Jesus is looking for. And you know it says in the last days before the coming of the Lord, there's going to be a great falling away of believers. And do you think that great falling away of believers could have something to do with that? That people haven't signed up for that? That they weren't told that they're called to be martyrs? For Christ, that Jesus actually calls them to be martyrs. Actually, Jesus says, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. He says, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give it up for me, you'll find it." people like to, you know, talk that away and, and, and give us, you know, oh, well, you've got to die to self. Yeah, that's true. You've got to die to self. You've got to die to sin. But it also has a physical application. It also, you apply it to actual life. And preparing, being prepared to lay your life down for Christ. so And he will take it up. Amen. And the reason I'm preaching like this is the Lord's made it clear to me that I have to preach like this and I'm not to soft-pedal the gospel anymore. If I ever have soft-pedaled the gospel, I don't think I have ever. I, I can't soft-pedal it because the Lord is going to hold me accountable. And I've been I know I have to preach it even if the church, you know, loses half the people that walk in the door because people don't want to hear it. And people don't want to hear it because, oh, I'd rather go and hear the prosperity gospel than hear that. I'm not prepared to die for Jesus. No one actually told me that when I got born again. So I have to preach it. I have to preach it. And you know what? It's, at least when I stand before Jesus, I can say, look, I preached it, Lord. I preached what I had to preach. But you know when a message like this will be well, well received? as if something like ISIS started to invade Australia. And and ISIS armies were just on the doorstep of of every major city and going through the country and wiping people out and calling people, if you don't turn to Islam, we're going to cut your head off. And and once that's happening, if if it happens, and please, Lord, don't let that happen. But if it happens, I think we'll have the most popular church
1: around.
0: (laughs) I just got a feeling... (laughs) And I don't think I'll be preaching in here. I'll be up in the woods somewhere. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's when people want to hear that. That's when people want to get a hope beyond the grave. As Christians. You know, too many people are preaching having a hope in this life That it's all about this life and getting you as much as you can from God in this life and God really is just a genie. He gives you whatever you ask for. But that's not it. That's not the gospel. That was never the gospel. That gospel has never been preached, except in recent times. They're preaching it as a means to financial gain. And you know what the Bible says about that. These are wretched wretched ministers. And there's going to be an increase of people who call Jesus the Christ and will deceive multitudes. It says multitudes of ministers will be raised up and they'll be preaching about Jesus And they will deceive multitudes. Jesus says, watch out in the last days because that's what's going to be the case. And when I read that, I always go, Lord, check my heart. I don't want to be one of them. So it makes me go closer to Scripture and get serious with the Word, find out what it absolutely means. And then call people to live by that as best I can. And I pray, Spirit of God, just take a hold of us, Lord. Take a hold of us. Spirit of God, take a hold of us. Get a grip on us. Turn us into the people we're meant to be. Amen? Lord, let that be. Preterists believe, so I'll get back to the sermon. <laughs> a little bit of a side note then. Uh, preterists believe that um, the two witnesses represent a line of prophets culminating with John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was the, was the last of the two witnesses. And that's what preterism believes because it has to be finished because they've got to get the whole thing packed, finished and packed up by AD 70. Um, there's many reasons not to get into preterism, but get this. Do you know a huge movement of people believing in preterism that the Bible, that the book of Revelation has no relevance today because it's been done, it's been fulfilled, it's over? You look it up. There's a sermon that uh, Joe Schimmel did. Uh, you can get it as a podcast and it's called The Dangers of Preterism. It's very important that you check that one out. Anyway, I won't talk much more on that. Spiritualists believe that they are the witnessing church throughout its entire career. So the two witnesses have been the church throughout the entire last 2,000 years. They also think that the two witnesses could be Zerubbabel and Joshua, the priest who were God's agent, of restoration after the exile, so way back then, which was um, in Zechariah, and you know how we got two olive trees in Zechariah, if anyone's read it. We will be reading that today, because we need to look at that. Now, some commentators have said that they could be symbolic for mercy and grace, or law and the prophets, or even the Old and New Testaments are the two witnesses and there's reasons why they believe that i don't necessarily believe that at all but um that's what some people teach seventh day Adventists believe that they are uriah smith and ellen g white so ellen g white's gonna come back (laughs) yeah god help us maybe they could be donald trump and mike pence i don't know (laughs) i'm sure there's a movement around there donald seems to think it's pence I don't know. Some futurists believe that they are the witnessing church in the last days. The witnessing church in the last days. Now that's an interesting one. Because we're going to talk about that one. That futurists believe that they are the witnessing church in the last days. But most futurists believe that they are two actual men. Enoch and Elijah. Or Moses and Elijah have been the most popular. And... Uh, that's where I've been leaning pretty much my whole Christian walk. Is that it's either Enoch and Elijah or Moses and Elijah. Who would say you've pretty much been in that camp? Yeah? Most of us have been in that camp. Yeah, I was, you know, there's no one who could change my mind about that one. You know? But uh, I questioned a few things after seeing what I've seen in the last week. Some pre tribulationists pre-tribulational rapture futurists who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture believe that they are raised up from among those who are left behind on earth after the rapture of the church. So they believe the rapture of the church is going to happen before the seven-year tribulation and then God's going to have to find some new people that weren't Christian to go then and then have to get them Christianized. and that's going to be interesting because how will they know unless someone tells them? Does the scripture say that? So if the church is gone and many pre revelations think the Holy Spirit's gone. So that means you can't even say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if the, if the church is gone, the Holy Spirit's gone, how will anyone become Christian? And it distinctly talks about saints being on earth during the tribulation. And saints being under the altar of God, crying out for justice. And Jesus saying, hold on a little longer until the rest of those who are to be killed as you have been killed have come in. So it's going to be hard if you're a pre-tribulationist to, to explain how does someone get saved once the Holy Spirit's gone and once the church is gone and there's no one to preach. So I, I, that's why I just simply can't, there's many reasons, Who's heard a lot of my sermons on pre-tribulational rapture, there's many reasons why I can't lean towards pre-trib, because it just doesn't make sense. Another one is that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, don't let anyone deceive you, that day will not come until the Antichrist appears. And what's the day? The day of the rapture cannot come until the Antichrist appears. But the teaching is that you're gone before the Antichrist appears. But Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you, it won't happen until after he appears. Anyway, I wasn't supposed to, I said to myself, do not get onto the pre trib rapture. So I'm not going to go any further with that because I've got a big sermon ahead. so. Um, but they believe that they're raised up from among those who are left behind on earth after the rapture of the church during the Great Tribulation. So the Great Tribulation has taken place and all these Christians uh, raise up and then Jesus chooses two to be his two witnesses. I'm not sure about that one. But one of the most popular views is Enoch and Elijah. So I just want to talk t- about them. Uh, they never died. Enoch walked with God. For 300 years then he was no more because God took him away. We also know that Elijah, the Tishbite, came on earth. He did a, about a three and a half year ministry, I believe, something like that. And then he, was no, uh, well, he got taken up in a whirlwind um, in a, uh, like a chariot. And Elisha, who was watching him, saw it happen. So we, we know that he went off to heaven. So they're the only two in the Bible that we hear of who have been raptured off the earth. And Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. And that's uh, what the scriptures say. saying. Now, the counter argument to that is that when Jesus returns, there will be people alive on the planet. Because it says he, we who are still alive and uh, who are in the Lord will be raptured. So those people who are alive won't die, will they? They're going to be raptured and they're going to be given their imperishable body so they definitely can't die now. They've been changed in the twinkling of an eye. They're raptured. And so that, Hebrews 9.27, I think doesn't cover that. So maybe the death Jesus is more concerned with is death to self or death to the sin nature. Because to Jesus, when you actually die to your old self, to him it's a real death. To him... When you're born again, you are born once more. And to, to him, spiritually speaking, it's a real, real thing. And to us, it should be a real, real thing. We should be dying to those things. And the Bible says clearly about this, Romans 6, 6 to 8, uh, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with or rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, that's who we're dying with. We're dying with Christ. We believe that we'll also live with Him. Also, Galatians 2:20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. So I, um, He's crucified, and He no longer lives. Christ lives in Him. So to the, to Paul, it was very real that death is very real. However. I'm not writing off Enoch and Elijah because they are two prime candidates. Now the most popular view of the two witnesses is Moses and Elijah. And the reason the miracles the two witnesses do in Revelation 11 sounds like the miracles which Moses and Elijah performed while on earth. Right? This is why most of you probably believe it's Moses and Elijah. Uh, Malachi 4.5 also says that I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, that the Lord will send Elijah. Now, Elijah never died, whereas Moses died. Is that right? So that makes it hard because, you know, a lot of, look, we're thinking that more than likely Enoch and Elijah because they hadn't died. But Elijah never died, whereas Moses died. But even so, there is reason to believe God preserved Moses somehow due to his appearance in the Transfiguration. Um, because when Jesus was on Mount Transfiguration, that's what I think they ended up calling it, there was Moses and Elijah. But if Moses died and was in, at Abraham's bosom, then Jesus wouldn't have seen Moses. He would have only seen Elijah and maybe Enoch. But there was Moses and Elijah. So that we beg to ask the question, how come Moses is there and not with Abraham? Because that's where prior to Jesus coming to earth, I'm giving you a lot of information, I hope you can handle all this. Prior to Jesus coming to earth, anyone who died in God, in the God of the Hebrews, would die and go to be with Abraham in the belly of the earth in a place they called paradise. That was the hope. They went to paradise. And if you didn't die in, uh, in and go to paradise, you would go to a hell or Hades. Yeah. Now... We know in this story there's Abraham and uh, the rich man, you remember the rich man and Lazarus, and Abraham and uh, Lazarus was talking to the rich man and, they, and he said, come over here and just dip your finger in some water, give me a drink. He says, no, there's a chasm here and we cannot cross it. We can't go from here to there. So it's obviously they could see hell Hades and hell Hell Hades could see um, paradise, but they couldn't cross that divide. And that's where souls prior to Jesus came. But when Jesus came, He set the captives free. He took them out. He let them, uh, you know, He set the captives free. And in His train, He took them to heaven when He ascended to heaven. So now we have a populated heaven with all the saints that were prior to the coming of Christ, and also anyone who dies in Christ now goes there as well. And, and it's a beautiful hope, isn't it? It's a beautiful hope because heaven is glorious. Because we've heard of people describing it, the Bible describes it as the most wonderful place. Streets of gold. You know, I've never seen streets of gold, so I couldn't imagine what they'd be like. And uh, it's really good to bolster your hope to read a few accounts of uh, some heavenly visitations because Christians are the only religion on earth that have hundreds, of, if not thousands of people who, do, who say they've seen heaven that Jesus has taken to heaven or they've had near-death experiences and experienced Jesus Christ in heaven and also seen hell. And Christianity is the only religion on earth that has that kind of boast. So check those sort of things out because they're, they're pretty uh, amazing. But this is the transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, brother James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before him. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then... There appeared before uh, them. That was the disciples that were with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. That's powerful because there they were. So there's Moses. So the death of Moses. Let's turn to Deuteronomy. And I want to read this. And there's another scripture in Jude we want to read as well. It gives us insight into why Moses is potentially one of the two witnesses. I feel like I'm talking really fast today. <laughs> I might have a drink. Am I talking fast, Billy? Yep, but it's good. <laughs> Long, tell me to slow down if you're not if you're not it's getting two it. Billions. Sorry. It's two oh, Billy, and <laughs> Billy, hey Billy, there's
1: Billy. Where are you reckon, Billy? And Judah, there's a little Judah in there. <laughs> um,
0: Thirty-four, one to eight. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across the Jericho. From Jericho, There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim, and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev, or Negev and, the whole, sorry, lost my page, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him. Who buried him? God did. God buried him. That's interesting. He must be the only man that God's buried. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. And these are interesting words here too. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. What that's saying is, when your eyes are not weak and your strength hasn't gone, you don't die. But then he went up, no one knew where he went, and God buried him. And he was going up to die. Die to the people of Israel. I don't know. I'm just reading it, putting it out there. Now, Jude 9, it says this, but even the Archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, mm-hmm. didn't dare to bring a slanderous accusation against the devil. Get that. Mm-hmm. Michael was disputing with the devil. The devil wanted Moses. And he said, no, I've got Moses. And there was a fight, mm-hmm. a verbal fight. Michael won. So what is that telling us? I don't know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say it. i got my thoughts. But that it's got something to do with the fact that Moses is in the transfiguration. was there before Jesus. And it could be that he said, you know what, Moses, you were so good at what you did in Egypt, I've got another job for you. Just have to wait a few thousand years. That could be it. But anyway, that's as far as I'm going to go with that. But the counter-argument is Elijah had already come. And this, what that means, the counter-argument to Moses and Elijah being the two witnesses, that Elijah had already come because Jesus tells us that Elijah had already come. And he says it here, Matthew 17, 11 to 13, Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done everything they wished to him. In the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands, then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. So what he's saying is John the Baptist is Elijah. You didn't recognize him, but he's come. And that's it. So people believe well if, if Elijah's already come then it can't be Elijah. I've got a counter counter, counter to that counter argument. <laughs> Luke 1:13 but the angel said to him, "Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John." And Luke 1:17 says, "and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit And power of Elijah Mm -hmm. to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So what we're saying is that he went on in the spirit and power of Elijah. Mm -hmm. Malachi 4.5 says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, when Jesus came the first time, was that the great dreadful day of the Lord? No. The great dreadful day of the Lord is when he comes the second time because he comes after the worst times in the history of the earth. And it'll be called the Great and Dreadful. It'll be a great day, but it'll be a dreadful day because when Jesus returns, many people are going to be cast into hell because he's going to judge the world. So even though Jesus says he's already come, he's come with the spirit of Elijah. It's like I was saying to Jamie yesterday. I said, Jamie, you could actually... You know, live out your ministry in the spirit of Elijah or in the spirit of a John the Baptist or, you know, or in the spirit of a Charles Finney or someone like that. You have that sort of character, you know, but it doesn't mean you are that person. The next reason is um, that I don't believe that uh, Elijah has already come is that John the Baptist died and went to Abraham's bosom when Jesus was alive on earth. John the Baptist died, went to Abraham's bosom because Jesus hadn't died yet. And then a few, you know, probably a year later or two years, there was the transfiguration. And who's up there? Elijah. But John the Baptist is dead. He's with Abraham. So it couldn't be. Elijah can't have been uh, John the Baptist from that perspective. Also, there is the issue of Elijah being born from a woman, Elizabeth, yet he is alive in heaven. So, sure, God placed himself inside a virgin, Mary. Right, That was the miracle of miracles. How do you get God of the universe into a womb? <laughs> Only God knows how to do that. But the, the other thing is, if Elijah's alive there, how's he going to... Well, I'm not saying God can't do it, but I just don't think it would have been done. I don't think that's what God would do. would take Elijah and said, I'm going to make you a baby again. You're going to lose all memory of who you are now, and I'm going to shove you into a womb. I just don't... I don't know. That's another thing I sort of think about. I don't know if God would do that to Elijah. I don't think that was what he was inferring, that John the Baptist would actually be Elijah. I don't think that's what Jesus inferred when he said that. He said he came in the spirit and power of Elijah because he was a powerful man. All right, so they're my counter-arguments. But I still haven't got to what I'm actually wanting to share with you. But you can see I'm, I'm a big believer in the two witnesses being Moses and Elijah. And um, or Enoch and Elijah, and it's been my uh, bent or slant for my whole Christian war. But who are the two witnesses? And this is where I want to sort of study the scriptures, so bear with me a little bit longer. The answer lies in who the Bible says they are. If you read through Revelation, you'll find it never really says that they are two people. There's a few translations, mine included, that says two men. But, you know, it's the only translation that says two men. Every other translation says these are the two, you know, uh, olive trees and two lampstands. It doesn't say these two men are. So every, uh, and in the Greek, it doesn't say men. I checked that out. It doesn't say men anywhere. It just says these or these prophets or these witnesses it's referring to. So if you read Revelation 11, you'll find it never really says that they are two people or two individuals. It just says in Revelation 11:3, 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And think about it from this perspective. When Daniel dreamt of four great beasts, who knows the story? In Daniel 7, he received an immediate interpretation from the angel. There was four great beasts who explained to him that they were four kingdoms. However, no such interpretation is given in relation to the two witnesses, so we must let the Bible interpret the Bible to get clarity on the verses. Because if it was just beasts, just say there was four great beasts spoken of, we can actually go, if, if, even if the angel didn't interpret it that those beasts were kingdoms, great kingdoms that will rise on earth, we could have gone to the rest of Scripture and found out from the book of Revelation that beasts uh, and animals and that represent kingdoms. You can actually find that elsewhere in Scripture. But with the two witnesses, it, the angel doesn't give us a direct interpretation, so we've had to make up our own interpretation. We've, we've all thought it was Moses and Elijah, and Moses and Enoch, um, or Elijah and Enoch. And, um, and we've made up our interpretation from, what we, from the evidence that we've gathered. However, the key verse to their identity is Revelation 11.4. That these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That they're two olive trees and they're two lampstands. That, so it's like God is saying, this is who they are. You want to know who they are? They're two olive trees and they're two lampstands. Now find out what olive trees represent in the Bible. Find out what lampstands represent in the Bible. And then you've got a picture of who they are. Doesn't that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's how God expects us to look at Scripture, especially Book of Revelation, because it's a symbolic book in many respects. So two olive trees. What are the two olive trees? Two lampstands. What are the two lampstands? What are witnesses? So the two olive trees. We'll look at that. Remember that picture, John? The two olive trees. Zechariah 4. Let's have a look. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 4. This is going to nearly put us back to where Revelation 11 leads us. Because it's, uh, it, it doesn't say exactly, but I have to read it because it speaks of two olive trees. But we'll go from there and then we've got a few other scriptures to go to. If you're trying to find Zechariah, like me, it's just before Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. And then the angel, you on there. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me. As a man is wakened from his sleep, he asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. So if we go back to the book of Revelation, we're not going to go there, but the seven lights are interpreted as seven spirits of God. The lampstand, I won't tell you what that is yet, we'll, go, we'll talk about that in a minute. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Who uses that scripture? Yeah, in your prayers. What are you? O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it. And then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. So this is why, um, I can't remember, I think it was the spiritualist believe that it could be Zerubbabel and the priest Joshua because of it speaking about Zerubbabel at this time building the temple. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth and in book of Revelation it's referred to as the spirits of the Lord then I asked the angel what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand again I asked him what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil and he replied do you not know what these are no my lord I said and so he said these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth the two so that sort of works in with Moses and Elijah a bit doesn't it but these two olive trees that stand before the Lord these are the two Anointed, But it doesn't say anointed men. It just says to anointed. So let's keep going then. The Jewish people were, were called a thriving olive tree in Jeremiah 11:16. 16. Let's go there. Jeremiah Jeremiah 11, 16. So the Jewish people in this. Let's have a look. And he's talking about the, the people of Israel. The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with fruit, beautiful in form. So the olive tree here represents a people. The Jewish people, the Israelites, the people of God. Is that what it says in your Bible? Yes. This is very interesting, isn't it? So the olive tree is a people group, according to the Old Testament. Now let's have a look about the Gentiles becoming part of the olive tree body, which is Christ. And we know in Romans, we'll go to uh, Romans 11, because the Gentiles are actually grafted into the Jewish olive tree. So the, the olive tree is Jewish, and the Gentiles are grafted into the Jewish olive tree. And he goes into a, quite a discourse here, because he obviously realises that you know, this whole gospel that we're bringing to the world is coming from a Jewish base, and all you Gentiles who we're calling, we're calling you in. And then he gives them some hard words too. He calls the Gentiles. He says some hard things to them. Let's have a look at it. Romans 11, verse 13. And it says, I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy whose his own people are, the Jews. He, he, he makes his, um, the whole ministry to arouse them to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection, this is the Israelites, Now, this rejection isn't permanent. This is just a temporary rejection. If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, meaning the reconciliation of the Gentiles, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So what will their, if they've rejected so that the Gentiles can come in, their acceptance is gonna be life from the dead. Now, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So if the root is holy, who's the root? Christ. christ 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 is the root of the olive tree the olive tree is jewish because jesus was jewish his physical self and the branches are jewish mm-hmm. but some are broken off and so gentile branches have been put in wild olive trees like we were a wild bunch mm-hmm. we've been put in and the root is holy and if the root is holy the whole tree is holy mm-hmm. 11 13 to 32 so If some of the branches have been broken off, this is verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, don't boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root. Who do we not support? Jesus Christ. Don't boast over the branches because you're not supporting your brothers. Who are the brothers? Jews. But the root supports you. So it's like Jesus is supporting me alone. But no, he's supporting the whole thing. and We've got to not post over those branches. Granted, they were broken off because of unbelief. And they were. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you will be cut off. Continue in the kindness. Amen. Continue in your kindness. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. Who are they talking about? The Jews. 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 For God is able to graft them in again. He is able to graft the Jews back in. After all, if you are cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery brothers so that you may not become conceited Israel has experienced the hardening Israel has been hardened we all wonder why Israel doesn't have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Messiah it's because they've been hardened who's hardened them? who hardens some people's hearts in the Bible? God God. he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that the wonders that Moses were going to do in Egypt he hardened Pharaoh's heart so Moses could perform those wonders and miracles and signs. So Israel's been hardened. And why? Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So the olive tree is clearly the Jewish people. Now there's um, a number of things we've got to discuss in relation to that. But once the full number of Gentiles has come in, Israel will come to faith. Because the scriptures say so. So when's the full number of Gentiles coming in? How do we know when the full number of Gentiles has come in? Into the Jewish olive tree. Because at that time, the Israelites will come to faith. So we will know when Israel turns to Jesus Christ, we will know the Gentiles have come in. And it's complete. The whole olive tree, or two olive trees actually. There's two olive trees. You know... We, we, there's, uh, in the book of Revelation, there's, there's one church, amen? One church, but there's seven churches that Jesus speaks to. Those seven churches represent different elements of the church. So before Jesus is seven lampstands that he walks among, and those lampstands are churches. But there's one church, but seven lampstands. There's one people, Israel, but two olive trees that the Gentiles being grafted into. The two olive trees would be the 10 tribes of Israel and the house of Judah. So the house of Israel and the house of Judah, because they were divided, weren't they? They were divided right through, um, uh, pretty much from the time of King David. They divided, I think, King was it Solomon?
1: After Solomon.
0: Solomon, Solomon. after Solomon. Sorry, I'm just getting my history right. I haven't read the book of Kings in quite a while, so I've got to go back over that. So it was from the time of Solomon, the, the house of Israel and the house of Judah divided. So there's two olive trees and that's how Jesus sees them. He also calls them lampstands. So Revelation 1.12, let's go there, that's when he's walking among the lampstands, so this is how we know. This is the two witnesses, so we've got to keep this in mind. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw a seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet among the lampstands. Let's go to verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstand is a symbol for a church. So when Jesus says these are the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, They're two churches and they're two churches or Jewish-Israeli churches that have engrafted Gentiles into them. And they will come to power in the last days for 1,260 days. That's what the scriptures are saying if we let Bible interpret the Bible. Now this is exciting. And I'll just say why you guys are the two witnesses that's why if we are around in the very last times we are the two witnesses every believer in Christ is a witness every believer is one of the two witnesses and they will give them power to do great exploits And we're going to discuss that and I don't know if I'm gonna have enough time to get through it all but I want to continue it next week Mm -hmm. Revelation 1 12 and I said that the lampstand is a symbol for the church what is a church is it a single person is it a single entity no a church has always been a body a group of believers revelation 114 is saying that the two olive trees and the, and the sorry the two witnesses are two churches or two bodies of believers that's what it's saying now I'm still not counting out Moses and Elijah I'm still not counting out I'm still I am and, and 144,000 have to be mixed into this because they're gonna be raised up at that time so the 144,000 it says something interesting about them. They follow the Lord wherever he goes. They stand before the Lord. There's no guile fan in their mouth. They do not swear or, or curse or anything, and they're virgins. They haven't lived on earth a great deal of time. That's a better way of an it. Yep. They haven't lived on earth for a great deal of time. But we'll talk about that, and that's fascinating when we get to that study. The people of God. Jesus talks about the people of God being lamps. Um, Matthew 5.14, we'll just zip around on these quickly. And he's talking about the, the people of God Matthew 5:14 to 16 and it says you are the light of the world a city on a hill cannot be hidden neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl instead you put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house so the church is to be put on a stand and give light Luke 12:35 and it says I don't go there I'll just quickly go there if you're fast on the knee can read it before me 12:35 and it says, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning. We've got to keep our lamp burning. Jesus talks about the people of God bearing fruit in John 15, 5. Um, when he talks about, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. And an olive tree bears much fruit. So we're always been considered to be fruit-bearing lights. Amen. So witnesses, Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You'll be my martyrs in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In the early church, the people of God were able to do great exploits. The dead were being raised because when they received power, this is what happened. The dead were raised. The lame were being healed. Limbs were being restored. The blind were seeing. Is it a time for the people of God to stand up like this again or will this actually come upon the people of God again but at a greater capacity? Because we're going to find out some interesting things about this time. We're going to find out some very fascinating things about this coming move of the Spirit. When God gets a hold of his people like he's got a hold of them uh, back in these days and and sort of like the the times he got a hold of the people during the Great Awakening. But this is going to have another element. It's going to have another significant element. If we look at Israel, and I just want to cover this uh, base as well. Isaiah 43. Turn to Isaiah Israel were called witnesses way before the church was called witnesses. Did you know that? 43.10, and it says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. This is in the book of Isaiah. This is not New Testament. And my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I even, I am the Lord. And apart from me there is no saviour. I've revealed the saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. That's what we are the witness. Mm. We are the witness that He is God. Yes, and from ancient days I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? So He is God, and that is our witness. And that is what the two witnesses will reveal with such great authority, with such great power, doing such great exploits, that that the people of the world will have to stop and take notice. Actually, they take notice so much that they want to kill them. They want to kill the two witnesses. At the moment, we're, we're just annoying people in the world, aren't we? You know, these crazy Christians. You Because know, it, it seems ridiculous. What are these guys doing in church like this? and they think we're praying to some unknown God or just something of, and in our imagination that we've, that we've got to... It's all faith-based and faith is not science. and it's, You know, it's not true. But at this time, the power of God will be so strong on the people of God that all the people of God, if, they, if there's something going on over there and they come and get that in the name of Jesus, it will happen. And if people are trying to harm them, the fire that comes from their mouths will be the word of God because we're going to find out what that fire means. It's, he's going to make the word in our mouth like fire. I was saying to Jamie yesterday about someone trying to harm us. And, you know, if, if it's literal fire and, and you've got a sniper from one kilometre away and he's about to take your head off and you have to breathe fire, that fire's got to go a long way, doesn't it, to burn him up. But what it is, is you're preaching the word and God can see there's a sniper about to take you out. So what does the sniper do? Uh, God do to the sniper? Kills him. Boom. And it's because of the word being preached that he will die. Because he's trying to harm you. And God's not going to let anyone harm us while we preach for three and a half years. When we prophesy, and that's what it's called prophesying. We will be prophesying the word of God because the spirit of God will come upon us so powerfully that the very words of God will be given us all the time. And that's the power of God coming out from our mouths. Mm. That's the level of this revival. Mm. But we're going to have an adversary. Our old adversary. Mm. And he's going to, at the end of that three and a half years, he's going to come up from the abyss. He's going to be exposed for all to see. People will see him and they'll realise, aha, he is real. Mm. There he is. He come up. And what's he going to do? He's going to wipe out the two witnesses. Mm. And it's, there's many references to the saints in those days being killed and headed, And crying out to God, when are you going to exact vengeance on our enemy? And, and, and in the situation. He says, wait until the full number of those who have to die just as you have died have come in. And we've also found, and I'm doing this speedily because I won't have time today to get to it. That at the end of another three and a half years... After the three and a half year persecution period of the church, when the last person comes in, the end will come at that time. When the last Christian who is, has been uh, declared by God to have to die in that manner, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. The Lord says. When the last person dies, the Lord will come. And I don't know exactly on the timing of that in the sense of, because Daniel talks about these time periods, 30 days after and then 45 days after. Who knows what I'm talking about? Yep. Then there's 1,260 days of witnessing and 1,260 days of persecution. And then there's a 30-day... 30-day and then 45 days. And then 45 days after that, 1,290 and 1,300... Well, whatever it is. (laughs) is. My maths is not good. All right, so that's interesting. Amen. Let's go to Isaiah 44, 6-8 just to see that the Jews have been referred to as witnesses way before the church was born. 44, 6-8. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my people, my ancient people, and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not grumble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Again, they are witnesses. And um, I was saying to uh, Judah last week about um, uh, the current people in Israel and there's a lot of speculation about who they are and all that sort of stuff. Only God knows, really. At the end of the day, only God knows. You can do DNA tests and all that sort of stuff, but... The fact of the matter is when they came back to their homeland the jewish people from certain parts of the world had maintained the hebrew tongue yeah. and when they came back they started to teach the youth in school the ancient hebrew that was maintained for 2000 years And this has never been done before this is a miracle above, beyond all miracles that 2000 years an ancient people remained intact Scattered into the four corners of the earth, but remained intact and maintained their Hebrew language mm-hmm. from 2,000 years before. When they came back, they could still do it, and now they're actually um, they're teaching it in schools and kids are learning. It. What do they call that? Yiddish or something? I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think Is that right, John. That's Yiddish. No, it's a different... Oh, it's different, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, you can look into that, but it's it's a fascinating thing. So. Um, God's done an incredible miracle, and never before in, in the history of the earth has a people come back to their homeland, whether they are the people or not—that's another speculation. But the thing is, is that, that it's back where they originally were, called the same name. And I'm not saying they're perfect; they are far from it. Actually, they're not Christian; they're far from it. But they will become Christian. Because the Word of God says so. And that's why the Lord is encouraging us to pray for his people. And that they are still the apple of his eye. Do you know when you have a child and your child is going astray, do you hate them because of that? Or do you still love them? You still love them. You want them to come back, don't you? You want them to come back. So you pray for your child and you you weep over your child. When the child comes back, you rejoice. Amen. And that's Israel. You know. So we've got to pray for Israel because Israel is going to be a powerhouse in the last days. When Israel gets going, they've got a history of being unstoppable. You know, they couldn't stop Moses and Elijah. Oh, sorry, well, they couldn't stop either of them. They couldn't stop it. Elijah, all by himself, stirred up the whole kingdom. You know, and Moses went into Egypt and wreaked havoc by the power of God. And who's heard of the Six Day War? God stopped that in his tracks. Six days, bang, bang, bang. Three, three countries could not get in and they just shut it down. Two days each. It's powerful what God is doing. God is not going to let that country get moved. He is going to make sure it, it, it fulfils its purpose. And it has a big purpose because I believe it's being prepared for this end time. And we are going to be united with them. And when the 144,000 come... That's going to be exciting because I talked to Jamie about it. I said, you know what? We will more than likely get a visit from one of the 144,000 we are going to come in and preach. So I'll say, have the pulpit.
1: <laughs>
0: and it's going to be awesome. Supernatural at a level you've never imagined. The supernatural and the wonder of what God's going to do is going to be so mind-blowing in these days to come. And you know why it has to be like that? Because the technology of this earth is getting so mind-blowing There's going to be such great technologies out there that that the enemy is going to be coming in like a flood. And the power with which they will move is just beyond our comprehension. You know, uh, anyone who's been in the army knows that there's stuff going on in secret that we know nothing about. There's power in in their top secret departments and war machinery and whatever else. Things that they can do which would just blow our mind. So what do we need? We need a power beyond that power because he's going to raise a standard. And this power that he's going to give to who? Little old church. Those annoying Christians. And then he's going to make them bold in the face of all of this. That they couldn't care less if they got killed. Because they're all God, and, they're, and I have become so little, so less, there's so li- little of Rob, so much of God, that I'm just going to go forth, and, and if they kill me, they kill me. Wouldn't even bat an eyelid. That's the sort of confidence. So if people think, oh, I don't want to go and you know, get killed, well, you know that, that's all well and good. But if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, God has got complete control of you, you won't even blink in the face of that. You know, which is why the disciples could get through their ministry like they did and face terrible persecution, and they died horrifically for God. But they didn't. They didn't bat an island. You know, that's what we got. That's the revival. You know, because Satan is going to make war, and you know when he he makes war, he's not going to pull us into concentration camps and get us to submit. That's not going to happen with the people of God. He's going to have to make war. That means he's going to bring out his heavy guns. And the church is going to bring out their heavy guns. Mm. And guess what? We got bigger guns. We got the arm of God. Yes. Boom! Yeah. You know, they got their nuclear weapons. He will just go, ping, ping, ping. Yeah. Sound like Donald Trump. <laughs> and he'll just lay bare his holy arm, smash! <laughs> Everything. Anyone in the vicinity is gone if they try to harm anyone but we're also going to see the most spectacular things taking place in these days. And guys, who knows I'm getting this from Scripture? Who knows I'm getting this from Scripture? I'm not making this up. This is in the Scripture. Have you ever had it presented to you like this before? But this is what God wants to do. This is what God has got planned. And we have to get ready. We have to get our minds wrapped around this. We have to start living for this. We've got to see that's who we are in Christ. There's the promise. The church is meant to be a powerful, formidable army that Satan can't touch until the archangel of Michael, the protector of the people of God, is removed. And then when he's removed, then the church will stand in the face of great opposition. So I've got a lot more to preach on and I won't do it today. I'm going to sort of make a note of where I'm up to. Um, and Jamie's probably going you forgot to say this, 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 this. <laughs> next week next week yeah but we'll get to it and I, um, who, who enjoyed that yes. yeah when I when I uh, saw this video and then I spoke with Jamie and we started to elaborate from the things that we knew and Jamie came in he was great he came in with a pad of scriptures yeah. pulled this pad out and there's, this scripture this scripture I'm going wow he's done his homework he's ready and uh, as we glossed over all this it's just wow you know, you can uh, tie, tie together the book of Revelation now with, with this knowledge in place. With, with the end, when the two witnesses, when, when he says, Come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, what does that sound like? The rapture. That's the rapture. Come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud. And that they were dead, and they raised to their feet. That's the rapture of the church. And then what happens straight after that? The seventh trumpet is blown and the end is announced. And that runs in line with the parallels that I've talked about with the seven bowls of God's wrath and the seven trumpets and how parallel they are. It just all fits together. Isn't that amazing? You know? So God is doing an incredible thing at this day. In these days, God's going to help us to get the full understanding of books like the book of Revelation and the book of Isaiah and the book of Daniel. It's all going to piece together and we are going to be a people prepared. Amen. For some awesome times ahead. Because this revival, first though, let me just add, there will be a refreshing. A refreshing is when the church comes under the power of God and he starts to get us right with him. He starts to clean up his people. He starts to move in spiritual gifts and spiritual powers. He starts to, you know, people start to have words of knowledge and words of insight and there's great healings and there's all these wonderful experiences. I don't know how long that's going to happen for, but it's going to happen. But the thing is, with where all other revivals may have died out after a number of years, this isn't dying out. This will just go, it'll start slow and it'll just start to progress and it's going to progress and progress and progress. And before we know it, we're standing there as a mighty army prophesying for him. And it's going to be powerful. Amen. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited. Amen. What a hope we have. This is all in the scripture. This is our hope. Now, I'm sure there's going to be a million questions, so... Um, a million and one. <laughs> <laughs> just like me, when, when, when Jamie sent me the, the video that I watched, and I got 20 minutes in and I sent him a text, I said, no, no, no. <laughs> Didn't I? This is wrong, this is wrong. But I actually added that in, what I said to you, I added it into, into this sermon. Um, because I believe this is, I would add this and then I'll go into more detail. Moses and Elijah or Enoch and Elijah, whoever it is, will more than likely head up the two olive trees. There'll be one heading up one tree, one heading up the other tree, and they'll be the actual two witnesses heading the church because there'll be that leadership that we need. They'll be like the Evan Robertson or the uh, Charles Finneys or whatever of this time. But it's supernatural because they're coming straight down from heaven. They're just like, boom, boom, they're here. You know what I mean? And when we talk about the 144,000, that's going to be exciting as well. So this is uh, a great hope. But um, please come to me with questions, and I know I'm going to probably be here for a while. (laughs) God bless you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time, and thank you if... uh, Lord, if these things are true, if these things are... uh, as as we're seeing from Scripture, then, Lord, we know that we're heading into um, incredibly exciting days, and also, as the Word says, and you yourself said, Lord, that... uh, Days like never before and um, they'll be so bad that they'll never be seen again. (laughs) So we know that if we're heading into those kind of days, we need the full power of God because, Lord, um, uh, we can't do it in our current uh, state uh, uh, as a church. We need you to be with us in in such wonderful and glorious ways. And, Lord, we also can't forget the Great Commission, that uh, we are here to bring multitudes into the kingdom of God and to get people saved. And so, Lord, help us to stay mindful of that as well, that uh, all of this, the power of God being poured out, the tribulation and everything that takes place is to get people saved. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that's exactly what it's for. So, Lord, may we start to pray as we should. May we start to seek you as we should. May we become the people that we're meant to be. May we just shake off all kinds of sin and temptations that that get the better of us. And, Lord, help us to rise up and become a powerful people (coughs) the kind of people that you created us to be from the beginning of days. And so, Lord, uh, we just thank you for what you helped, us, uh, helped me to share today. And I just pray that uh, everyone was blessed immensely and just help us to uh, now as a church just to um, you know, really chew over this like Bereans. And I know there's going to be so much to chew over. So, Lord, help us as Bereans in this church to um, understand what the word is saying and uh, grow stronger and stronger in our faith as a result. So we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless you and have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you all in a minute. God bless.